Well, hello, CKT. <laughs> hey, Sam. It's very different to be on this side of the mic. Uh, so, Sam, is this turning to a recurring bit? Yes, it is. Um, kind of the realities of a long-distance relationship. I am in Toronto, for those who haven't discerned. How is CKT? Uh, the heating's uh, kind of on the fritz. There's a weird noise coming from the cabinet as well. Mm. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, you know, the usual. Sounds like fun. What are you, uh, what are you up to today? Um, I'm doing a bunch of interviews for The Dominion, cool. the podcast I get paid to do every month. Uh, but we it's a pretty sh- good time to plug The Dominion podcast. The no? Dominion podcast, uh, for those unaware, the monthly current <laughs> affairs uh, podcast of the media co-op. That is a, that's a very good plug. Um, yeah, so we're doing a short because it's going to take a little more time for us to put together the next episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, things have been pretty busy at Trafe HQ. Didn't you want to mention something before we uh, got into who we're talking to? I did want to actually maybe just mention, if not give a shkoyach, to someone, uh, Sam, if that is acceptable in your eyes. Certainly. Is it a positive or a negative one? Um, It is a positive. So I guess I am, yeah. I'm giving a shkoyach to Aaron Cohen. He was running for the leadership of this national Jewish student body in the UK. Uh, did Did you follow his campaign at all? Not in any meaningful way. I think I read about that he's like anti Zionist and he's he's crew with like some of the people that we know and like in the UK, but I don't actually know that much more. I think it started as a joke. There are hundreds of different policy uh, <laughs> policy statements that were running from the absurd to the actually pretty good. Like he was saying it was the uh, the Bell five plan better than Bell four. And and it was like one of one of one of the five uh, points was uh, bagels, dreidels and socialism. Oh, wow. That's a pretty good platform. Yeah, there is, there is some good stuff in there. Uh, they, he didn't win, but uh, uh, my shkoyach is for the effort that was put into that campaign and the humor that I derive from it. And uh, oh, really? for folks listening, uh, we'll include a link in the show notes to the Facebook page for that campaign just so you can you know, scroll through and maybe enjoy the jokes as much as I did. Great. Well, props to Aaron. But uh, Sam, uh, who do we have on the show this week? We've actually been holding out on this interview for a couple of months now. Um, we, had, we, we had a chance in the early fall to talk with Daniel Boyarin, who is a prophet at Berkeley, has written a bunch of really important books. I mean, I think a lot of people listening to this podcast have probably read or come across Unheroic Conduct. Uh, if, if you haven't, I would highly recommend it. Yeah, stop listening to the podcast and go to the library and get Unheroic <laughs> Conduct and read it. It's fantastic. Um, yeah, so he answered our email and he was willing to talk. We didn't really know which show to put it in, so we're going to kind of put it out now. Uh, it's a great interview, and uh, I think a lot of folks listening will enjoy it. So without further ado, here's the interview. Well, my name is Daniel Boyarin. For nearly the last 30 years, I've been professor of Talmudic culture at UC Berkeley. Before that, I taught in Israel. I was um, professor of Talmud at Bar Ilan University and professor of Hebrew at Ben-Gurion University. Uh, my training was at the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York, uh, where I got a PhD in Talmud. So that just gives you the academic CV, as it were. And secondly, I'm interested in Jews and Jewish life and Jewish culture and just 
keeping the whole business alive in as variegated and multiform mode as possible. So I'm glad to participate in this discussion with you. Oh, thanks. I mean, on the note of the, you know, many different forms of Jewish life, uh, in, in preparing for the interview, I was reading some other interviews that you did. And something that I noticed was this tension that came up in some of those conversations about your identity as an Orthodox Jew with your radical leftist yeah. politics. And I was actually wondering if you still identified as an Orthodox Jew. There, there was this quote where you had said that you had given up a bit on imagining a different version of Orthodoxy, and, and you felt that you weren't being the, the Orthodox Jew you wanted to be. You also didn't feel like you had, were being the radical you wanted to be. And, and is that still a feeling that you have? Yes, yes. But, uh, but I'm not willing to give that tension up and go one way or the other. I'm still very committed to Jewish practice, to keeping the Sabbath and the holidays, um, not eating trace, and etc. I'm still very much a practicing Jew, and um, certainly haven't backed off my radical commitments. Um, so I was interested in what your perspective is on on the narrative of Jewish leftist politics and how much you see that history being internal to the religious tradition and how much you see that being external to it? Uh, it's complicated. I mean, nothing historical is simple. I do think that there was strong input in those, certainly for those first generation of Jewish leftists, in Eastern Europe in particular, that there are strong impulses towards justice, both economic and other forms of justice, that grow out of the Orthodox tradition and certainly fed, I think, those streams, those strands, those developments. There were Orthodox Jews in the leftist movements also. In fact, one of the um, members of the first Politburo was an Orthodox Jew. He was Minister of Culture. And many Orthodox Jews were drawn to communism, in fact, early on, and for exactly that reason. On the other hand, to simply identify Jewish tradition with a leftist orientation is historically false, because there are plenty of right-wing Jews who have as much claim to the tradition as the left does. So I don't go along with certain American voices who claim that only leftist ideas or people are true Jews. That's nonsense. It's historical nonsense. But the second point is that a Jewish leftist tradition that was very much rooted in Jewish identity developed and took on a life of its own. If you look at the uh, photographs from the 1913 meeting of the International in New York, I think it was 1913, 80% of the signs are in Yiddish. Well, I'm actually, it, that makes me think of, especially in the United States, you know, there is a huge secular Yiddish leftist movement. Uh, I'm just uh, curious how you, how you engage with that tradition. It enlivens me. I find it deeply moving. I am, I would say, as nostalgic for that kind of Yiddishkeit as I am for some kind of authentic and rich traditionalist Jewish experience, I would have to say. You know, the Nazis, they didn't only kill millions of Jews, they killed Jewish possibilities, they killed Jewish culture in such profound ways. Uh, between the wars, 
there was such a rich international Yiddish movement. It wasn't all leftist, although much of it was, of course. But even even that leftist movement had so many varieties, from the you know from the Bund to actual communists to more somewhat more conservative forms of socialism and anti-socialism. There was a Jewish world. There was a Jewish life, and I'm deeply, deeply saddened that that doesn't live anymore. One of the pieces of culture that I think you're talking about comes up a whole lot in a book that you wrote called On Heroic Conduct, which I know that many of my friends have found deeply meaningful. Um, I was wondering if you could possibly describe what led you to write that book, and then what were the big takeaways for you thinking about the impact that that book may have had? That's a good question. I mean, all your questions are good, but um, <laughs> but this is a question that makes me think some new thoughts. First of all, I would say that unheroic conduct came in the wake of Carnal Israel. And Carnal Israel was a kind of celebration of a body-positive, sex-positive Jewish culture that goes back very, very, very deep in the tradition and stands in some ways against the sex-negative traditions that developed largely in the wake of the impact of Platonism on Western culture. But having written that book, I became aware, through the agency of very good friends, of how blind the book was in its celebratory nature to two vitally important issues, one of a kind of inherent androcentrism of the tradition, not that I hadn't been aware of it before, but I hadn't really taken its measure seriously enough. Of course, I was aware of it. And on the other hand, the at least potentially, if not actually, homophobic nature of the traditional Judaism that I was describing. So I decided, coming out of that, that the next step was somehow to not attempt to answer those objections, because the objections are unanswerable, but to find ways within the tradition without discounting or discrediting the negative and appalling sides, uh, and without claiming that what I was finding was the true Judaism and the other was somehow false. As I said earlier, I don't hold with such ways of thinking, but to find resources within the tradition to counter, in a sense, or provide resources for different ways of being and thinking with respect to gender and with respect to sexuality. I'd say, in fact, that each one of my books is meant as a correction of a book before. Hmm. So I am my own dialectic. <laughs> I mean, we, we've, we've spoken with people on the show who are, are engaging similarly in this very delicate balance between dissecting the tradition and not apologizing on the one hand for the parts of it that don't cohere with the ideals that we're striving for, and on the other side, trying to acknowledge them consistently. And, and I'm just wondering if you can talk a bit more about that tension and, and how it plays into your work. It doesn't play into my work. It is my work. It's, it's like air that I breathe. It's like water that I drink. That is on every level the, and, and every possible kind of tension. The tension between a passion for 
intense and intimate and vibrant Jewish life and an absolute commitment to the solidarity and equality of all peoples of the world, a commitment to intense engagement with the Talmud, and a equally powerful commitment for uh, gender and sexual justice. These are the conditions in, in which I live. Well, I, I, I mean, the particular tension that I'm the most interested in is just the kind of day-to-day reality of engaging with the tradition like so many other traditions, you know, marred by the forces that plague our society today of patriarchy, racism. And I'm wondering what your what your perspective is on the origins of those systems of oppression within Jewish tradition and how inherent those things are. Well, the origins are simple. Jews are people, not worse, not better, but people and human beings seem to have a tendency to a strong tendency to create differences, to oppress people who are different, to oppress small groups, to oppress minorities. Powerful people oppress uh, less powerful people, and powerful Jews oppress less powerful Jews. What's significant for me about Jewish tradition, and I suspect this is true of many, if not most, if not all traditions, is that there are counterforces against those tendencies within the tradition as well. I'm only going to speak about the Jewish tradition because that's the only one that I know intimately in this way. And what I seek to do is to amplify those countervailing forces so that they become more powerful and more central. And it's not by any means my project, maybe a small cog in it, but I think that that project is going not badly with respect to gender and to a certain extent with respect to sexuality as well, where I think that we've made very little progress is on the question of race. And that's for a variety of reasons. Would would you care to describe some of those reasons why you feel like the counterforce against racism is one that maybe hasn't picked up in the same way as these other... Well, partly because it feels like a zero-sum game almost, or it has felt like a zero-sum game. Either you are deeply committed to the future and the future vitality and continued existence of the Jewish people, or you are some kind of a universalist, as if the two are incompatible and impossible to reconcile. And I think it's felt that, been felt that way by many people, and uh, by many Jews. And so an, a very, very important discursive educational move that needs to be made is to demonstrate through writing, through living, that this is not a choice of that nature, that one can be deeply, deeply, richly, actively committed to Jewish life and Jewish culture and Jewish survival and Jewish thriving and to anti-racist and universalist practices as well. Second, the whole business of Israel, I think, has been a deeply distorting factor. As Israel has grown more and more racist, in ways that it wasn't 40 years ago, 50 years ago when I first went to Israel. Now, I would argue that the seeds of the present racism were already there, but the, the way things have gone have really kind of further forced the dichotomy, and particularly with the 
official communal discourse that we hear on all sides, either you're with us or you're an anti-Semite, or the other term, Jewish self-hater. So many people feel, well, look, if the only way I can express my disgust, my being appalled at the racist behavior of the Israeli state is to thoroughly dissociate myself entirely from the from the Jews, because the Jews are telling me I'm a bad Jew, so that's where I'm going to go. So again, the kind of leftist activism that is deeply committed to the Jews and Jewish culture and Jewish identity and Jewish existence and the Jewish people is absolutely necessary to um, at least keep open the window of a possibility of that kind of activity. So, so there's a way in which you feel like this counter, the community and the ideas and the institutions that come out of this counter force within the Jewish community are significant to keep the broader community and the kind of broader ecosystem intact or like in check, maybe? Right, yes. I mean, I think that groups like Jews for Racial and Economic Justice and Jewish Voice for Peace, etc., are not only precious for the excellent political work they're doing, but they're also precious, even though maybe a majority of Jews don't recognize it, but they're also precious for keeping the Jewish people alive and the possibilities of a Jewish folk alive. You know, just recently I heard about an organization, and I, I won't mention its name because I have not done full research on it, but I heard about an organization that takes on itself to alert universities that certain applicants for graduate school or certain applicants for jobs are anti-Semites, i.e. that they are pro-Palestinian activists or anti-Zionist. Aside from the fact that I find this appalling and wicked, I also find it so deeply foolish with respect to any possibility of ongoing Jewish existence. If more of the Jewish leadership were able to accept that there is dissension and deep division among Jewish people, but nonetheless recognize something like a Jewish people that contains those differences, that we would have more of a future as well. In, um, in an interview that, that I found, uh, you, you, you talked about how it took you a really long time to say the term anti-Zionism, and then I think the word you use is that it now rolls off your tongue. I think that within the different Jewish communities in North America, there's also a strong um, refusal to acknowledge colonialism in North America. And it's almost like it's now kind of a big step for someone in the community to take a stand against settler colonialism in Palestine. But it still seems very far away to even really talk about it meaningfully in North America. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what to say. The truth is that I become much more aware of it when I'm in Canada. Um, I would actually hope that certainly leftist Jews would find it in their hearts and souls to identify with that struggle of First Nations. I think part of the reason I've become more aware of it in Canada is because it's, it's so quiet in the place where I live, although, of course, the story of Leonard Pelletier and, and other such stories have always moved me very deeply and moved me to certain kinds of activism, at least the minimal activism of sending checks. So, you know, I'm not quite well-versed enough in what is actually going on, certainly mm -hmm. not in what is going on with the Jewish community with respect to these things. But I don't see any reason why 
uh, leftist Jews should not be deeply engaged wherever it's an active struggle. Um, so before we let you go, uh, I just had one last question. It's a bit of a different tone than the rest of the interview, but I read that it's, is it true that you went to high school with Bruce Springsteen? <laughs> uh-huh. Okay. okay. I mean, <laughs> you got to tell me more about this. Well, uh, I didn't know him. He was uh, okay. two years younger than I was. Oh, uh, okay. And he was, you know, with that working class group of students, presumably, which I wasn't. But I do know that we're both together in the free old regional high school hall of fame but you were you were at the high school at the same time yeah he was a freshman when i was a junior have you ever gone for back to reunions have you ever crossed paths no no we crossed paths in my dreams Um, i love the boss but i can't claim i mean i found it a little ridiculous when i did go for a reunion and people including teachers were claiming to have known him and and I imagine some of them did and some of them didn't, but it seemed a little bit infradict to be claiming that as some sort of distinction. <laughs> so so does Bruce Springsteen get more plays on your stereo than Sam and Dave? Probably, yes. Okay. <laughs> yes, I would say over the years. But I do love Sam and Dave. Have you listened to Hold On, I'm Coming? I did, I did. When, yeah. you, when you sent me that email, I listened to both songs. Thank you. Uh, for listeners... Aren't they... Aren't they- <laughs> For listeners in their 20s, uh, Sam and Dave is, uh, how how would you describe them? One of the best R&B stroke soul groups of the 60s. (laughs) Yeah, you're the second person to bring us to our attention. One of the many future lawsuits we have to look forward to. (laughs) Right. Uh, Okay, guys, it's been fun. Yeah, thanks so Um, much for... I gotta go. I imagine you gotta go, too. Greatly appreciated that you took the time. Thank you. Be well. Bye-bye. So that was our interview with Daniel Boyarin. Uh, thank you, Daniel Boyarin, if you're listening, for uh, agreeing to talk with us. Uh, David, is there any housekeeping that we have to do before uh, signing off the show? Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, one thing is, uh, I'm sure you're all thinking that the same thing that we're thinking. It is a season where some of us uh, engage in our yearly war on Christmas. Yeah, I think some people have already gotten a good head start into hashtagging the war on Christmas for various things. But uh, if you can and are willing, uh, tag Trafe in your hashtag war on Christmas posts because uh, we'd love to see them. I don't think there's any other housekeeping for the time being. We have a we have another no. we have an episode that we're pretty excited about that will be coming out in about a week or two. And aside from that, you can just follow us on social media as usual. Podcast is Sam Bick and David Zinman. A huge thanks to CKUT 90.3 FM, where we recorded this episode under the shadow of the giant cross of secularism on occupied Yanyahaga territory. As usual, thanks to Kira Page, our social media consultant, to Claire Hertig, our minister of design, uh, C. Lavery, who designed our great new poster, Kidens O'Neill, who designed our new website, and to Ariana Katz, the Trafe staff rabbi as well as the two musical supporting staff, Sack Syndrome and Josh Dolgan. If you're left wanting for more Trafe content in between our episodes, you can always follow us on Twitter, on Facebook. Uh, you can send us an email at trafepodcast at gmail.com with hate mail, strange jokes, just reaching out to say hi. We'd love to hear. And more episodes soon.
Skating Moses. So we have a backup number if this one yeah, doesn't yeah. work. But we're not even ringing yet. Yeah, which is strange. Right? No, no, it will start usually. It's taking a long time. Longer than normal, yes, David? Yeah. What do you think that means? I don't know. Maybe it means it's broken. Skype.com. Yeah. Oh, there it's working. It is. 